So we are in our series, uh, looking at 1 Corinthians, as we have been for quite a while. We had a little break in the middle, of course. Um, We're now into chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, just to introduce it for for those who maybe not not been here before, you're very welcome this morning. My name is Chris, by the way, part of the leadership team here. Um, We've been looking through this book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, because... Uh, well, we love going through the Bible together. We love learning from God's Word together. But actually, we felt that uh, if you looked at the city of Corinth, there's quite a lot of similarities to our city here in Liverpool. It's a city based on trade. It was a city with a lot of multiculturalism. Uh, a city founded, actually, with a, a big passion for sport, which obviously Liverpool is. Um, we won't talk about that too much today, after the results yesterday. Um, it, was, it was good for you, Cathy. Not so good for me. Such a bad mood. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's lots of similarities and lots of things that we could get hold of. Um, and it was a young church as well, being written to by Paul to sow some stuff into it and, and to correct some stuff. Thankfully, some of the stuff that Paul's correcting in Corinthians, we're not having to correct here. But nevertheless, we believe the scripture is useful for us as we, as we grow. So I'm going to read the passage first and then we'll, we'll get into it. Um, if you can open your Bibles or open your phones or your apps or whatever you've got, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to pick it up from verse 17 uh, to the end of the chapter. I'll just read it for us. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come... I will give further directions. 
Okay, we've looked at the, uh, the similarities between Corinth and Liverpool. What we're talking about this morning uh, is the Lord's Supper, or Communion, or Eucharist, or Mass, whatever you've been brought up calling it. And what we've got in this book, we've seen it all the way through, is a key theme. There's a balance between maintaining distinctives within the church and actually ensuring unity. And we've seen it as we looked at certain issues of freedom. We had that little section, uh, chapters 8 to 10, about living lives in what we call the borderlands, trying to live lives as Christians in the world around us, trying to maintain our our Christianness, our Christianity, our, our relationship with God, but also trying to engage with a culture that doesn't know God. And that, that tension of trying to be distinct, but also trying to engage with the world. And last week, we had a really interesting issue, uh, a very, very tricky passage, uh, which was really about maintaining distinctions between gender, male and female, a really difficult passage on, uh, on head coverings. Didn't Chris CB do a really, really great job on that? He tried to get out of it the week before with a mystery stomach bug. He tried to show us a video of Terry Virgo and hope that we'd forget he was meant to be preaching on that passage. But when he came back, we still made him do it. And he did a great job. And it's great to see we've still got some women with us this week. Uh, although Tor's not here, Chris. <laughs> Mystery stomach bug again. <laughs> it was a really difficult passage. But the, the heart of it was, and I hope you got the heart of it, was that there's some unique distinctions between male and female that are there to be celebrated, actually, and protected um, amongst us. And this week, we're looking at a different kind of distinction, or Paul's warning against a different kind of distinction, but this time, he's not asking them to keep it separate, he's asking for unity. So there's a distinction, as we'll see, between another group in the church, the rich and the poor. And Paul's saying, actually, that's the distinction that shouldn't be there. We need, we need unity. And actually, Paul launches an utterly stinging attack on the church in Corinth to really address this issue, which was all connected with the Lord's Supper and how they were celebrating communion. So let's, let's look at the, uh, the issues. When you think of the Lord's Supper, when you think of communion, it's a funny issue for us as Christians because it will probably depend on your upbringing, if you've been brought up in the church, as to what communion looks like to you and what it means to you. Um, for example, if you were brought up in the Church of England or Roman Catholic tradition, you'll probably have a very particular experience and memory of communion. I can probably test which of you were brought up in the Church of England Roman, in, or Roman Catholic, if I just say, the Lord be with you, and also with you. It's ingrained, isn't it? The start of that Eucharistic prayer. Lift up our hearts, we lift them to the Lord. That, do you think we should have more liturgy in Freedom Church? <laughs> no? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> but actually, the practice of communion, of the Lord's Supper, is drilled into people. If you're in the Church of England, the Roman Catholic. I was brought up at CV. My, my father's a vicar. I pretty much learned the Eucharistic prayers off by heart. I could recite them in my sleep. Um, if, if you don't celebrate communion every week, it's pretty much near enough every week in those churches. And our children in those churches are brought up. And there's a landmark, isn't it, of being confirmed, of being able to reach that age of being spiritually mature enough to participate in communion. And taking communion in those settings, it's a a solemn affair, it's an ordered affair, there's liturgy, there's structure, there's a queue, nice British queue as we go up to take our communion, there's some ritual, there's some real reverence to, to, what, to the practice of it. And that may be your experience, when you think of communion, if you've been brought up in that setting, that might be what you think. On the other hand, if you've been brought up through a more 
well, a less traditional background, maybe a charismatic church, like a New Frontiers church, your experience will probably be a bit more informal, maybe a bit less regular. You're more likely to have a conversation of, when was the last time we did communion? Oh, I think it was like three months ago. We probably haven't done it for a while. Just nip to the corner shop, get a loaf of Warburton's and some Ribena. We'll, we'll do it this morning. It's not quite that bad, but you know what I mean? <laughs> There's a lot less structure, a lot less emphasis, I think, placed on it in, 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 in some of the modern charismatic churches. And, and it might be a little bit of a different experience and, and maybe a lot more informal, a lot more welcoming, a lot more relaxed. There's no queuing, there's no, there's no ritual, there's no, no that sort of thing, but still it's a, it's a celebration of it. Whichever extreme you've come from or somewhere in the middle, doesn't really matter, you should ho- hopefully have some sort of recognition that the communion, the Lord's Supper, is something that we are supposed to do as Christians. It's something that is supposed to be part of our walk with God. And actually, if we look at the early church, it was very much part of what they did. So this is the, the Christians meeting together in Jerusalem just after Jesus has died and ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. They're meeting together. If you look at this passage, there's, there's, there's all the things you'd expect to find in the church. You've got teaching, you've got worship, you've got sharing, you've got signs and wonders. But mentioned twice in the paragraph, actually, is the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. It was clear from the outset that the Lord's Supper celebrating the communion amongst the believers was something important, something that they did with regularity and with with some passion. And of course, as the church spread, as Paul and the other apostles and disciples took the church across the world, they ingrained it there as well. And, And each of the churches expected to carry on this practice. But in Corinth, one of the churches that Paul has planted, we've got a problem, a big problem with how they are practicing the Lord's Supper. And this is the paragraph, so uh, this, is, this is from verse 17. Paul is absolutely scathing of what they've done with it. He says this, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when, when you do so, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. One person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Do you despise the church of God by humiliating, humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I have praise you in this matter? No, certainly not. See, the Lord's Supper was meant to be a unifying, together experience and something that glorified God. And seemingly, what they've done in Corinth is perfect the exact opposite of that. There was not equality and togetherness when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Some of them were forming little cliques and celebrating the Lord's Supper alone and excluding others. In fact, it was, it was worse than that. We've got an issue here of the rich and the poor being divided. You see, in the early church, and especially in Corinth, it was common for the Lord's Supper to celebrate communion as part of what they would call a love feast which sounds interesting. <laughs> don't know what comes to mind. But a love feast or a fellowship meal. And this would be where the church would gather to celebrate together. They'd share food, they'd share drink, there'd be some community, and they would break bread and drink the wine and they would celebrate the communion. But there was a problem. The wealthier among the church, those who maybe didn't have to work a long working day, maybe who made all their money and they, didn't need, they weren't shackled by a master, they weren't having to work whatever hours it was, they were free 
to arrive at this Lord's Supper, this love feast, earlier. And they got first dibs on the food and the drink. And they would tuck in and start having their, their merry way with it. And unfortunately, those in the church with less money, those in the church who were working all the hours that God could give them to try and just stay afloat, would eventually get to the love feast. Oh, there should be a picture there, never mind. And they would find nothing left. In fact, it was worse than that. They'd find a scene of debauchery because the rich folk... I know, there's nothing there. Thank you, Chris. That's, that's what I was trying to illustrate. Thank you. But they would find a scene where all the rich folk were hammered. <laughs> they'd drunk all the wine, they'd eaten all the food, and there was nothing left for them. And these, these poorer folk would, would turn it up and say, well, weren't we supposed to be celebrating together? Weren't we supposed to be eating together? Weren't we supposed to be doing something together? There's, there's nothing left. This was an event that was supposed to honour the sacrificial, unifying love of Jesus. And it instead, it turned into a debauched event where the rich were, as Paul says, ultimately humiliating those people who had nothing. Instead of bringing togetherness, they were actually emphasising the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And Paul does not pull his punches as to what he thinks of this. These are some of the things he says in the passage. I have no praise for you. Your meetings do more harm than good. Do you despise the church of God? You're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus Christ, of the Lord. You're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves. That's pretty massive statements, aren't they? Pretty massive. Imagine you're in the church, you're one of those wealthier folk, and you've been going along to these love feasts, and they're like the highlight of your social calendar. You love going to these things. You're getting together with your mates, having some good food, some good drink, having a grand old time. Yeah, there's a few people who miss out at the end, but you know, really, this is a good thing. It's the church coming together. We're having some food. We're celebrating the communion. And then you get this letter read out to you from Paul telling you this, that you're despising the church of God, that you're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I think you'd be pretty mortified. And Paul is deliberately using very shocking terms because he wants to underline that this was a huge issue. The Lord's Supper to the church in Corinth had become a frivolous party where gluttony and hedonism triumphed to the exclusion of those who are less fortunate. And that could not be any further away from what the Lord's Supper was intended for. Not only were they missing the basic point of it, they were trampling all over it and dishonouring what Jesus had set out for them. What had Jesus set out for them? I want to try and understand this better. What is the Lord's Supper for? What, what is it about? What, what are we supposed to do with it? I'm going to try and unpack what communion, what the Lord's Supper means to us. Why is it so important in four points? Four points today, not three. But don't worry, it's not going to take too long. Um, four things. Remembrance, participation, togetherness, and obedience. Or if you want to make it a mnemonic, Repto. <laughs> I could have done port, couldn't I? If I'd, never mind, doesn't matter. This is what Paul says, verse 23 onwards. For I received from the Lord, this is what Lord's Supper is supposed to be about. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is the new, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread 
and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. Firstly, remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. We're to celebrate communion. We're to celebrate the Lord's Supper because it gives us a constant reminder of the sacrifice made for us by Jesus, dying for us and rising again. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' death and resurrection is the most important event in the history of mankind. And communion, Lord's Supper, eating the bread, drinking the wine, it gives us a simple, tangible, everyday symbol to never forget it. It's almost impossible, although the, the church in Corinth seems to have managed it, it's almost impossible to go through the process of communion without being reminded and be, without being awestruck by the, of the actions that Jesus has taken on our behalf. You know, Jesus died for us. He shed actual blood for us to save sinners like you and me, to remove the gap that sin had created between us and God. If he hadn't done that, we would be alienated from God. We could have no relationship with him. Jesus' death took the punishment for our sin to enable us to have a relationship with God. We are sat here today as a church, as a group of believers, believing and having a relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And that's what communion reminds us of, that constant reminder. He decided that we were worthy to die for. And it is all too easy in this life to get bogged down in our sin and our mess, to beat ourselves up for the things that we do wrong and to lose hope for the future. And we need that reminder sometimes, don't we? Jesus paid it all. He did it all. He's done it. We had Angela Kemp with us a couple of weeks ago. Wasn't she brilliant? Those who came heard her. Actually, her talk from the Sunday morning is now available on the website or as a podcast. Do listen to it, all about her experience in South Africa. It's amazing to listen to. One of the things she said that really, really stuck out to me was she talked about the difference between South African culture and British culture in terms of spiritual culture. She said one of the differences between, between the two is that in Africa, they are super aware of the enemy. Super aware. They know there's an enemy out there. They are aware of him, and they pray against him, and they're not afraid to talk about him, actually. And they're very, very aware of the spiritual battle going on. Over here, we'd rather not talk about it. <laughs> we'd rather not admit that there's an enemy working. It's a little bit, a little bit weird, a little bit scary maybe a little bit impolite. We like to have the old stiff upper lip and not talk about it too much. And we kind of ignore the spiritual battle that's going on. The idea of an enemy, it's just, no thanks, I'll, I'll just put that bit to one side. I know Jesus is in control. I'll concentrate on him. Don't need to think about the devil. Well, let me say this very, very clearly. The enemy, the devil, would very much like us to forget all about Jesus' death and resurrection. He can't change the fact it's happened. The victory is won. Jesus has done it. It's done. But he'd love it if we could forget all about it, wouldn't he? That's his aim, for us to forget about it and to lose our faith and to, and to destroy off our walk with God. That's what he wants. He wants our freedom to be diminished. He wants us to keep forgetting about what Jesus has done for us so that we fail, so that we fall, so that we stray away from him. And our ability to move past sin is then weakened. Well, do you know what? Jesus never wants us to forget. 
Never. And I believe this is one of the reasons he's given us this act of remembrance, this Lord's Supper, to constantly be reminded, guys, I've done this for you. It's done. And it's not a reminder to make us guilt-stricken. It's not a, hey, guys, I did this for you. You need to keep remembering it because, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm, uh, I'm going I'm to hold, t- hold, hold you against this for the rest of my life. No, it's not. It's, guys, this is done. You're free. You are free indeed. My blood, my body, sacrifice for you. It set you free. You don't need to worry. You are free. And he constantly wants us to remember it. And I believe that is partly what this is for. Never to forget the sacrifice he made for us. <clears throat> the second thing, participation. I believe Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper as a tangible sign that we are actually included in what he did for us. And this goes a step further than simply remembering what Jesus did, although that's important. But there's a difference between remembering and participating. Let me give you an example. We celebrate Christmas, don't we? We remember that Jesus came to earth as a, as a baby and was born of a virgin and, and lived amongst us. We celebrate that. We remember that every year on the 25th of December, just like the Bible tells us to. <laughs> it was an incredible moment in history. But in itself, it doesn't have on its own saving power for us and we don't participate in it. Does that make sense? We weren't born in a stable with Jesus. We weren't born of a virgin with Jesus. We didn't get gifts from the wise men with Jesus. We're not laid in a manger with Jesus. We don't participate in his birth as such. We remember it and it's important, but we don't participate. The Bible tells us that Jesus' death and resurrection is different. It's not just a moment in history that we mark and remember but it's something that we are intrinsically involved with. This verse in Galatians 2. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you get that? The moment that Jesus died and was punished for the sins that we commit, we died too. Our old selves, our sinful selves, died with Jesus on that cross. We died to a life in which we were enslaved in sin. And when he rose again, we rose to a new life in him. Yeah? We're involved in this. We don't just remember it. This is part of what we are. Romans 6 develops this even further. I won't read the whole passage, but you can see it in there, the bits I've put out in bold. We are those who have died to sin. We died to sin. Our old selves are gone, put to death. Our sins are gone. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old self, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with Our sinful body is ruled by sin. They're gone, dead, crucified with Christ, that we would no longer be slaves because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's what this is about. 
We're not just remembering something nice that Jesus did for us, something amazing that Jesus did for us. We're remembering that when he died, we died too. We are set free. Our old lives are gone. Our new lives are there for living. It's important to recognize that when we're invited to eat and drink the bread and wine, we're invited to share in his suffering, which was for us, knowing that it achieves new life for us. Life free from the power of sin. Life in abundance. To be honest, we could preach a whole series on this alone. It's such a huge topic. I won't go much further into it, but this is such a key thing to understand as Christians. We are free. We are put to death with him. We are raised to life, new life with him. I can feel another series coming on. (laughs) The third thing, togetherness. There's a community aspect to communion. Actually, in the Bible, virtually every time we see, we come across the Lord's Supper, it's part of a meal. It's part of the believers eating together, sharing together. And it's something that is meant to be done together. And obviously, that, as we've seen, that was the problem in Corinth. It wasn't being done in that way. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is supposed to bring the body closer together around Jesus' sacrifice. In the previous chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that though we, are one, though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one loaf. That is a helpful reminder, guys. It's a remover of all airs and graces because all of us, every single one of us, are in dire need of Jesus' sacrifice for us. There's not one of us who can say, do you know what? I only need a little bit of bread. <laughs> I'm not that sinful. Actually, I don't need this. You guys, you guys go ahead, but I'm, I'm all right. Actually, we all need it. We all need the body and blood of Jesus. We all need his sacrifice. Otherwise, none of us would be in relationship with him. But it's amazing how easily some of this stuff can creep in. How easily status can creep in. I've been in churches where the special pews reserved for the wealthier or the royalty or that sort of thing. And they get served first with communion. I've been there. I've seen it. It creeps in, maybe not to the extent that it was there in Corinth, but it does happen. We do see some distinctions raised where they shouldn't be. Every single one of us in this building, in this family, in this body of Christ, needs the Lord's Supper, needs to sacrifice to Jesus as much as each other. There's no one who needs it less or more than anyone else. Actually, one of the helpful things in the, in the CV or the, the Catholic tradition, just before you get to the, uh, the, the communion section of the service, they share the peace. And they get up, and it's always horribly awkward, but they get up and they wander around the church and they shake hands with each other, and peace be with you, peace be with you. And you always, I remember countless times being kissed on the lips by old ladies. <sighs> I need counselling, I think. Um, but it was actually a tangible thing of, Guys, we need to be right with each other. We're in this together. We all need this. Let's get rid of any division between us. Share the peace together. Jesus' body was not broken for a privileged few. His blood wasn't shed for only those who could afford it. He was sacrificed freely that anyone who believes in him will not die but have eternal life. 
It is for the body. And it is actually for believers. It's not for people who don't believe in Jesus. There's a protection there. This is something to be shared by those people who are in a relationship with Jesus. It's for us. It's something that marks us out. Actually, if we, if we see people who don't know God, who don't know Jesus, celebrating this, it, it cheapens it somehow. This is something that was meant to be special for the believers in God. But it is for us as a body. And that's why Paul talks about it as proclaiming the Lord's death. As we celebrate this together, it tells the world something about us. It tells the world that we have been saved. It tells the world that there is salvation available. As we celebrate it, the world sees it. And they're invited to come and share it too, if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's meant to be a visible, outward sign to the world that as Christians, we're not special. We're not amazing human beings, any more than anyone else. But we are people who have had something amazing happen to us. We have put our trust in Jesus and we've been cleansed. And the world needs to know it. That's why Paul talks about it proclaiming something. The final thing, shortest point, um, obedience. Do you know what? The Lord's Supper is important because Jesus told us to do it. Simple as that. There's only a couple of things actually that Jesus commands us to do. One is baptism and the other is this. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. Two direct sacraments, if you like. Celebrating communion has a unique significance because Jesus told us it was something we were to do. It's obedience. It's part of saying to Jesus, Jesus, thank you for what you've done to me, done for me. As part of my, as it says there, as part of my thanking of you, I'm going to be obedient in this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to love doing it. Because you asked me to do it. And you've done everything for me. Absolutely everything for me. It's not meant to be a chore. When we say that Jesus told us to do it, it's not meant to be a stick to beat us with. It's not meant to be something that's annoying or difficult to do. It's a constant, joyful, grateful reminder of something really special. And obedience doesn't mean law and condemnation. This obedience is rooted in freedom. We're asked to do it for our own good and our own pleasure, and our own nourishment, and our own fulfilment, and for his glory. Okay? So where does this leave us? Thankfully, we're not like the Corinthian church. We're not having these epic love feasts, I don't think, unless I'm not being invited. (laughs) In which case, actually, I'm glad I'm not being invited. But I think there's something for us as a church and as people of God to be reminded of this and to be doing this regularly. This is a reminder to me of the importance of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's something that we're told to do, something that is good for us. And how do we go about doing it? Well, actually, the key, one of the keys that Paul talks about, well, let's go through these. Firstly, who? Who should be doing this? It's all of us. There isn't any of us that should be excluded from this. We learned that from from Corinth. This is about doing something together as a body of believers. Together, celebrating what God has done for us, remembering what he's done for us, participating in it, doing it together. It's something that will bring us closer together as a communion of believers. 
When should we be doing it? Well, do you know what? There's no law. We're not under law. The Bible doesn't say you must do this twice a week or once a month or anything like that. We, there's freedom in this. But do you know what? I think it needs to be regular. I think it needs to be regular. Because Jesus told us to do it regularly. And, and, and the model in, in Scripture is that it was done as a matter of custom. And so we'll do it on Sunday mornings. But also, guys, there's nothing to stop you doing it as the disciples did, as the early church did in your homes, as we meet together midweek as life groups. I mean, we share meals together pretty much every week, don't we? Those who, those who are in life groups will know every Wednesday or Thursday you meet together, you have a meal together. What a perfect opportunity to break bread together. Why shouldn't it be part of our normal weekly eating together? And it's not an optional extra. Communion isn't something that we can choose to do if we want every now and again. Actually, this is meant to be part of who we are and it's, it's important to us. It's good for us to do. So I would encourage us. We're going to do it this morning because you can hardly preach on communion and then say, right, off you go home. We're going to do it this morning. But also, can I encourage you in life groups and, and we'll try and do it more on Sunday mornings as well. Let's do this regularly. It doesn't take much. It doesn't have to be the most expensive wine or the most amazing bread. It's not about the quality of the ingredients. It's about going through the experience, remembering what Jesus has done. And what about the how? There's a key, a, key, a key comment in there from Paul about examining yourselves. And this is, he was saying to the Corinthians, guys, you're getting this wrong. You need to take a long, hard look at yourselves at how you're doing this. You're doing it in a way which is excluding people. You're doing it in a way that's, that's, that's making division. As we come to, to, to take communion, we're not, we're not going to do it with the bells and smells of the CVA or the, or the Roman Catholic Church. We're not going to be waving incense around. We're not going to be having cues. We're not going to be doing big, long Eucharistic prayers. We're not going to go through that process. But there is something about recognising the seriousness, recognising the importance of what we're doing. And that, that little check to examine yourself, to just, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this communion. I'm going to participate in this Lord's Supper. I just want to be right with you. You search my heart, God. Is there anything that I need to just deal with as I come to do this? And the Lord's Supper, it kind of ekes that out of us, doesn't it? As we think about his sacrifice, as we think about what he did for us, it's like shining a light on our hearts. And we recognize, oh, God, I need to deal with this. It's a great opportunity to do that. And actually, not just in ourselves, but with each other. Because you know, you know what? Sometimes people do fall out in the body of Christ. Sometimes little divisions do arise, and sometimes there's a need. You know, that practice of sharing the peace is all good as it is. Sometimes there might be a need if you think, you know what, I'm messed up in my relationship with my brother or sister in Christ. I just need to deal with that before I take this communion. I just need to hug them, <laughs> say I'm sorry, get right with them. And that's okay. But it's the opportunity to do that. It is easy, very easy, to slip into habits where we only reserve communion for special occasions where we dress it up in ceremony and ritual and mystique. Do you know what? All this needs to be is a simple, natural, regular expression of obedience, of remembrance, of participation, of togetherness. That's what, that's what we just need to get hold of. So I'm going to invite Debbie up and the band to uh, just play the song... And we're going to do this. There's bread, there's wine. I'm going to ask, as, uh, maybe Debbie plays a song. Let's have that moment of examining ourselves. Let's worship God.
Let him just shine a light on anything that needs to be dealt with in our hearts. And then we're going to serve each other. I'm going to ask maybe one person from each row or form little groups. It'd be great if you could get into a group with someone you don't know very well. Use this as an opportunity to share this together, to go through this as a body of Christ and to be drawn closer together by this process. There's wine. There's also grape juice if you prefer not to have wine. There's rolls. Please, let's, let's do this and, and let's celebrate what God has given us. Thank you.